and welcome again to Finding Truth Matters with Dr. Andrew Corbett. And it's worth thinking about when you get distracted and your values get skewed and you, you think in terms of, I wish I had a bigger house, a nicer car or whatever. Goodness me, we get so caught up in stuff that doesn't really matter. If you were to stand back and watch people in the midst of a significant event or a crisis, you might notice that while some people react to the situation, others respond. Even more impressive is when people respond with what appears to be complete calm and control. They seem to be content despite the apparent chaos around them. One such man who has inspired many, even since his death, is Isaac Walton. He was a man seemingly content, and his story is worth a listen. So let's join Dr. Corbett for a morning with Isaac Walton. Let's pray. Father, we come into your presence now, and there are some here who are weary, who are tired. There are some here who are discouraged, and I pray that today they would leave this place saying, man, I was glad I went to church today. And Father, there are some here who have doubts, they have questions, they are wondering how real is any of this. Perhaps they are young, perhaps they are teenagers who've been disillusioned with people perhaps who haven't lived up to what they thought they should have. And perhaps there are older folk here who've been hurt by those who have claimed to be Christians but barely lived it. And so Father, I pray that today you would deal with each of us where we're at. May we each leave here inspired more informed and more ready to come into your presence, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to introduce you to three people, two in particular, and chances are that quite a few of you have never heard of two of these people. And so I want us to spend the morning with a fellow by the name of Isaac Walton. Now, there may be some here who have heard of Isaac Walton. If you haven't, hopefully by the end of this morning, you will be acquainted with him and I hope inspired to get to know him a little bit more. I'm going to call him the complete man and the spelling is not a spelling mistake. The spelling is how he in that that time of the English language the word complete was spelled. So he's the complete man and I want to also bring along two other people who I think will help us to appreciate Isaac Walton. First one, if you can see on the screen there is uh, Nicholas Herman and the other one is a bloke by the name of Frank but that you'll, meet, you'll get to meet Frank a little bit as well. He's going to tag along. I, I preface what I'm about to say about these gentlemen with this scripture. It, it's interesting that in the Old Testament, the word contentment does not occur. It, and it occurs once in the New Testament, and this is it. I think the thought of contentment, the thought of being grateful for what you have, occurs all through scripture. But this is a, a good verse to sort of put down as a foundation and hopefully... As we put this up as a, a bit of a, a lens, we'll look through this lens at the lives of these three people. And if we get a chance to have a talk with Frank, we'll, we'll, you, you'll get to meet all three. Now, godliness combined with contentment brings great profit or, depending on your translation, great gain. Godliness with contentment brings great gain. I want to take you back to the early 17th century, 1611 in Eastern France. If I said to Christians and Bible students, what is significant, in fact, Alan, what is significant about the year 1611? You're at Mr. Bible Society. The publication of the King James Bible. And that should tell you two things. One, he knows a little bit about church history and Bible history. Two, it should tell you who was the king of England at the time. 
James I, and it should tell you nothing about what was happening in eastern France. But these were tumultuous times. In 1611, in eastern France, a, a, a young boy, as boys are normally born, was born. Uh, his name was Nicholas Herman. Now, Nicholas Herman was, was born in a, a city in, in uh, France called Lorraine, and he was born into a very, very poor family. They, they struggled to be able to eat as a family. So young Nicholas, as a very young teenager, as many young French boys who were fit and healthy at the time did, enlisted into the army. Now, at least in the army, you see, he was guaranteed meals and a very small wage, a very small stipend. He served up until the age of 40, which if he joined the military as, at the age of 13, meant that he'd served some 27 years in the military. And unlike the military today, there was no life pension after 20 years, nothing as extravagant as that. But he was discharged at the age of 40, and, and if you think in 1611, life expectancy around that time wasn't much past 40 anyway. So Nicholas was discharged at the, at the age of 40 because he could no longer serve as a soldier because he suffered a pretty major leg injury. And he then had to try and get a job. And he, he did, and I'll talk a little bit about that at the moment. But let, let me come back into his, his military career. About six or seven years into his military career, at the age of 18, he began to wonder what on earth he was doing. Like, generally, he began to wonder about life. He began to wonder about the things he had been made to do as a soldier. He began to wonder about the things he'd seen as a soldier. And it horrified him. It mortified him. He was a hardened soldier who had been responsible for, for some things that really, really troubled him. He began to think at that time, because in, in this era, it was a time when God was woven into the, the whoop and wharf of every part of society, French and English. People thought about God and his ways a lot. And he did. And at the age of 18, he began to wonder, had he sinned too much to ever be granted eternal life? I don't know how many 18-year-olds begin to think like that, but I know those thoughts hit me when I was about 16. And uh, as I was going through Anglican uh, confirmation, I think around about the time of 15, I was introduced to the concept of the gospel, as strange as that might sound, and it troubled me. And so through that period, I perhaps can relate a little bit, but it took Nicholas about the age of 18. He was wondering, is there any hope for him considering all that he had done. His physical appearance had been marred, his leg was hacked uh, later on in his service, and all of these things added to the weight that he carried. But at the age of 18, he was walking through the forest and he saw a barren winter tree. And this barren winter tree, he had seen many, many times through many, many winters of military service. And he realised every winter these trees would lose their leaves and appear dead. But then come spring, they would sprout green leaves and look lush and they would flourish again. And the thought occurred to him, and I don't know how God did it, but the thought occurred to him that even though you appear to be dead in soul, with me I can cause you to flourish and come alive again. And so with that thought of the 
barren tree. And you've got to understand, as we've just heard from Alan, the King James Bible, the most prolific, publicly accessible English Bible, was available, made available in 1611. They were great big fat things and they were usually chained to pulpits. But from that point on, they became available. The French didn't have that. So there wasn't the, 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 the proliferation of Bibles at that time. So, the, so these people who may have gone to church, which they probably did, they heard some spiritual nuggets and, and this spiritual nugget hit young Nicholas. God can take that which seems dead and make it alive. And with that thought, he said, Jesus, if you can do that in me, do it in me. And he says, at that time, I was converted to Christ. Pretty amazing. So after the age of 40, physically wasted, of no more use to the French military, he was discharged and he wondered, now what do I do? And ironically, for a man who really only had the use of one leg, he became a footman, which sounds pretty weird. It sounds like you're a messenger or something. That's not quite it. A footman rode on the carriage and really had one job to do, get off the carriage and open the door. And so that was what he did for the treasurer of France, who uh, took pity on an an ex-serviceman and gave him the job of, of opening his carriage door. But Nicholas describes he was so clumsy by this stage of his life that he was always breaking things for the treasurer. And so he realised being a footman with one usable leg was, of not, was not going to be a really good career for him. So he had a go at waiting on tables, but he would break plates, cups and saucers and he would just make a hash of it. And so he just didn't know what to do. And so he decided that he was now of no use to anyone. And so having been converted at the age of 18, he said, well, if I'm of no use to anyone, maybe I can be of no use to God. And so he said, God, can you use me? Because I I now realise that I... From what I've done, the sins of my past, I don't deserve any pleasure, any satisfaction for my future. I just come to you and I'm prepared to live the rest of my life for you in utter misery. That was his prayer that he records. So he applied to join a monastery. They looked him over and said, no way. No way. You would be a drain on the monastery. We can't have you because... Monks at that time had to contribute to the life of the monastery and they said this bloke was just useless. (laughs) So he's having it left, right and centre. So desperate, not knowing what to do, he heard that there was a vacancy for someone to clean and cook at a nunnery. So he applied at a nunnery. The monastery rejected him and then he became, he applied for this position at a nunnery and they were desperate, they accepted him. He was accepted into the discalced, which means barefoot Carmelites in Paris, where he would serve for the rest of his life. As was customary, he became a monk. And a monk means you're not ordained to the priesthood. A monk is a layman, someone who hasn't done any particular theological training, but they commit themselves to God. So he was a monk in a nunnery. He must have been a pretty ugly looking brute. Because he describes himself like that. He was getting on and he was cleaning. And and one of the things that he did, as was customary, was he took a new name. 
Monks had to, it was kind of like dying to who you used to be and now you develop a new identity. And so he took a new name, the name Lawrence of the Resurrection. Think barren tree, think alive tree. He took the name Lawrence of the Resurrection. This scripture shaped his life, or these, these scriptures... Will any one of you who has a servant ploughing or keeping sheep say to him when he has come in from the field, come at once and recline at table? See the picture? Uh, Jesus is giving this and he's describing someone who owns a farm and has servants and, and the servants come in from tending his farm and there he is at the table waiting for his meal for the servant to prepare it and say, oh, you've been working hard. Why don't you sit down and I'll serve you? Jesus says, what master is going to say that? The answer is none. The master instead is going to say something different. Will he not rather say to him, prepare supper for me and dress properly and serve me while I eat and drink and afterwards you will eat and drink. And as Nicholas gave himself to be a cook for a group of nuns, this scripture became very precious to him. Jesus goes on and tells the story. Does he thank the servant because he did what was commanded? It's a rhetorical question and Christ is looking for an answer and I think the answer is no (laughs) because the servant has just done what servants do and Nicholas had resigned now Lawrence who became known as Brother Lawrence as monks were known was resigned to the posture of a servant for the rest of his life. So you also Jesus said When you have done all that you were commanded, say, we are unworthy servants. We have only done what was our duty. This is a good thing to remember for those of us that have ever prayed a prayer. Jesus, have your way in my life. I just want to serve you. Because Jesus says, do it expecting nothing. Not even, did you notice in this story? Not even a thank you. Now, please don't misunderstand me or the one I represent. He's not saying that we should never thank people. But from the servant's position, it's done with absolute delight. And this was Nicholas's position. He saw everything that he did as serving and worshipping Christ. This is what he wrote. We can do little things for God. I turn the cake that is frying on the pan... For love of him. And that done, if there is nothing else to call me, I prostrate myself in worship before him who has given me grace to work. Afterwards, I rise happier than a king. It is enough for me to pick up but a straw from the ground. It's a cleaner. For the love of God. He literally had to clean their toilets. And as he did... He thanked Jesus and he said, Jesus, this is for you. He goes on and says, This is the most excellent method I have found of going to God, doing common business without any view to pleasing people, not looking for the applause of people. And as far as I am capable, doing it purely for the love of God. Former soldier, given his life over to doing what he could, To serve God. If I was to introduce Frank at this point, he has something to say about Lawrence as he compares Lawrence with a Tasmanian. 
well, someone who became a Tasmanian at least, Sir John Franklin. You've heard of Franklin House? The saint is never cast in a mould. No two are alike. On my desk at the moment lie two books side by side. One is The Life of Sir John Franklin. The other is Brother Lawrence's The Practice, Presence of God. It's one of the best-selling books in literary history. Can any greater contrast be imagined? Here are two types of saintliness. Neither appears to have anything in common with the other. For one man is a monk, the other is a mariner. The one is a recluse moving among the cells and cloisters of a Carmelite monastery. The other travels over all the continents and sails into all the seas. The one is essentially an ascetic. The other is essentially a man of the world. The one is pale and thin and sad. The other is bluff and bronzed and jolly. And yet I am impressed at this moment, writes Frank, not by the contrast, but by the similitude. Let us look for a moment beneath the trappings alike of the monk and the mariner, and in each case, let us search the soul of the man. I have quitted all forms of devotion, says Brother Lawrence, but those to which my state obliges me. And I make it my business only to persevere in his holy presence. I am assured beyond all doubt that my soul has been with God above these 30 years. Were I a preacher, I should above all other things preach the practice of the presence of God. And were I a director, as in a spiritual director, I should advise all the world to it, so necessary do I think it, and so easy too. I cannot imagine how religious persons can live satisfied without practicing the presence of God. While I am with him, I fear nothing, but the least turning from him is unsupportable. Now I had not revealed the source of these words, nobody could have ever told whether I had copied them from the conversations of the monk or from the journal of the mariner. They fell from the lips of Brother Lawrence, but they might just as easily have occurred in the correspondence of Sir John Franklin. So Frank describes Brother Lawrence in glowing terms, and he would go on and write quite a bit more about him. The practice of the presence of God came about because the nuns would come into the kitchen and see Lawrence content and happy. And wondered, how do you do this? And so he wrote letters to some of them, and those letters later formed the book, The Practice of the Presence of God, a book that has literally led millions of people to Christ to this present day. Brother Lawrence died February 12, 1691. Now, I introduce him just to give you a taste for the era. He also fits with the tenor of what I'm trying to do today as we now cross the channel and go to Stafford, England. We're going back just before Lawrence was born to the year 1593. In that year, Isaac Walton was born. Isaac Walton's father, interesting for those who are anglers will appreciate this, his name was Jarvis. And he died when Isaac was just two, about two and a half years of age. Isaac's mother lived just long enough to teach Isaac about God. Nothing is known of Isaac's education, but he became an accomplished poet, biographer and editor while learning his trade as, and I hope I've got this right, I'm going to say metal worker. The actual terminology is ironmonger. 
but I think that means works with metal. He moved to London and set up a shop in which he sold his wares. He was in his 20s at the time. He joined St Dunstan's Anglican Church and was pastored by one of the leading preachers in London at that time. His name was Dr Dunn, who greatly influenced him and he actually was a pastor. He took Isaac under his wing. He spent time with him. He read with him and taught him things. Later on, Isaac, so impressed with his mentor, wrote a biography, a sermonic biography of the late Dr. Dunn. Sermonic means he was able to weave some of his pastor's sermons into the telling of the story of his life. Isaac Walton lived during the most tumultuous time, as we'll describe in a moment, in English history. He lived during the reigns of Elizabeth, James I, as we heard before, Charles I, the thing called the Commonwealth, and under Charles II. And if you know anything about English history, you'll know this was a shocking time in British history. But we'll come back to that in a moment. I want, I want to paint a picture of the background to Isaac Walton's life. Fatherless, motherless, left to his own devices, taken under the wing by an Anglican minister, and then, 1826, he married Rachel Flood, who was the niece of the Archbishop, Archbishop Cranmer. And together, they had seven children who all died in infancy, soon followed by Rachel herself. You get the picture of this guy's life. He later remarried, and with his new wife, they had one child, Isaac who went on to become an Anglican minister. And that should tell you something about the home life that he fostered. But let me talk about this aspect of Isaac Walton. He threw himself into his business and worked very hard, worked tirelessly, taking no leisure, and you'll see why that's significant, taking no leisure at all, the least of all, fishing. It's said around that time that having... Worked all your life, men who worked all their life would retire and retire. And here was the expression, in retiring from business, a man virtually orders his coffin. <laughs> men weren't expected to live much longer in their retirement. So Isaac Walton, with all this that's going on, with all the heartache and setback and disasters that he experienced in his life, Frank, in another book, this one here, says, in a modest way, Isaac was very much a philosopher. He had no desire for wealth, but he made that mo most of what he had and derived an immense amount of satisfaction from what he had not. Oh, and I read, uh, uh, what? He, he was grateful for what he had, but he was more grateful for what he didn't have. Now, the context might help you, because as it helped me to understand what he was talking about. He saw his friends, who of a similar age, were developing diseases and, 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 and getting ill and dying. <laughs> and he describes these friends of his who would become really ill. And he would go, I'm not. In fact, he records in his will that he had perfect health throughout his life. And so he, he wrote this. Every misery that I miss is a new mercy. He became thankful for God, thankful to God, for what he didn't have. 
namely sickness, injury, illness, disease. Some people are irritatingly positive, aren't they? In 1643, and I don't expect that there are any aficionados of English history here to know why that year is significant, except that something's happened. King James I, who has gone down in the annals of history, is authorising the King James Bible, was succeeded by Charles I. Charles I lived around the time of the Puritans and the Puritans saw the concept of the crown as unbiblical and ungodly and even devilish. And so they took King Charles I and executed him. His son fled to France, by the way. So in 1643, with all this going on, we read this because while this was going on, Isaac Walton was jotting a few things down. And Frank says, Walton is the most restful soul in English letters. He hated flurry and noise. He retired from business in 1643. It was in 1643 that John Hampton fell in the Battle of Chalgrove Field. The Civil War in England was in full blast. But in his quiet folios, that is what he wrote, there is no trace of it. Doesn't mention the war, doesn't mention the turbulence that's going on. Walton lived through the most turbulent years of British history. He was born in the spacious days of Great Elizabeth. He saw the rise of the Stuarts the outbreak of the rebellion, the ascendancy of the Puritans and the execution of the king. He lived all through the days of the Commonwealth and witnessed the Restoration when the English experiment of dissolving the Parliament and having a supposed Holy Parliament didn't quite work and they reinstituted the monarchy and brought Charles II back. That's just by the way, that's a footnote on that. Yet, though England was a cloud of dust at the time, not a speck or a smut permitted to settle upon any of Isaac Walton's pages. As he put the finishing touches to his manuscript, the streets of Worcester, not far away, were choked with slaughter and bloodshed. But he never found a moment, never for a moment was he caught up in the spirit of the storm. He never hurried. He thought nothing of devoting 10 years to the preparation of a manuscript for the press. He was now 60 when he presented the world with the complete angler. While all this was going on, he wrote a book about fishing. <laughs> this book is not mine. I borrowed it because I don't care anything about fishing. But... <laughs> Because i tell you why I've never shown any interest in this book up until this last week. Because I thought this was a book about fishing. What was I thinking? You could forgive me for thinking it was about fishing because it's called The Complete Angler. But in this book, we read the philosophy of Isaac Walton, where... During this time of incredible turbulence and upheaval and everything that's happened in his own life, he wraps up this book by saying there are three things that are most to be desired. Number one, a good conscience. 
Number two, a reasonable measure of health. And number three, modest competence. Hmm. He writes, if you have these, enjoy them with gladness and gratitude. For God has two dwellings, and I love this quote, one in heaven and one in a meek and contrite and thankful heart. That was what Brother Lawrence discovered about that time. Which God Almighty ever grant me, he says in The Complete Angler. This book looks like it's a book about fishing. But he used fishing to deliver a message to England. God is on the throne, not the King of England. God is on the throne. Therefore, I'm going fishing. Isaac Walton, who retired at the age of 50 in 1643, thought he may have only had a few years left. His next 41 years were his most productive. I've just shown you the book that was published when he was 60 years of age. He thought that would be the end of it. The few hundred copies that were published, that would be it. No one would, there'd never be a second reprint. There were five reprints during his lifetime. That's all we have time for tonight, but you can order the full-length version of this presentation on CD, audio or premium download by going to findingtruthmatters.org and selecting A Morning with Isaac Walton from our online store. As we've heard tonight, there is something to be said for practising the presence of God. It was evident in the lives of both Brother Lawrence and Isaac Walton. In the midst of what others would consider absolute turmoil, they found contentment. More from Dr. Corbett next week. Dr. Corbett is pastor of Lagana Christian Church and president of ICI Theological College Australia. We look forward to joining you again at the same time next week for another Finding Truth Matters.